Bibles today, please, to the book of 1 Kings chapter 10. You can find 1 Kings chapter 10 in your pew Bible on page 540. You'll notice that 1 Kings chapter 10 is split into two parts. The first one deals with this visit by the Queen of Sheba to to King Solomon. And then the last part of of this chapter deals with the fall of King Solomon. I've been preaching a series of sermons through the life of King Solomon. That's why we're here now in 1 Kings chapter 10. Before we get to this chapter, let me and we pray before the sermon, let me catch you up to speed as to where we are. Last week, whenever I preached, I preached on chapter 5. If you turn back there in chapter 5, that's where Hiram from Tyre, he helps King Solomon build the temple. And in chapter 6, that's where King Solomon starts building the temple. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, it gives a date. It says that this started, he started laying the foundation 480 years after the Exodus. So, he did that, and in verse 38, it took seven years to build the temple. When you do the math, it's really interesting. It was in the year 3,000, that means 3,000 years from day one of creation, it was the year 3,000, year of the world, that Solomon finished building the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6. Move forward now in chapter 7. In chapter 7, it speaks about other buildings that Solomon built during his time. It starts talking about what he did inside the temple, the bronze pillars in the front, the massive bowl of water that they called the Bronze Sea. It symbolized the waters from heaven. And in the holy place, there were ten chariots and basins of water that symbolized water flowing out of heaven into the earth and the armies of God taking it out to the world. And there were ten massive lampstands there. And then in chapter 8, move forward in chapter 8, there were two cherubim, huge cherubim, overlooking, overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. And Solomon gives a long speech. He gives a long prayer. He dedicates the temple. And then in chapter 9, God appears to Solomon for a second time. And then we come to chapter 10. And we have the visit of another Gentile. Another non-Jewish person. This is the Queen of Sheba. Let me read chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and then pray. Verse 1. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway 
entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happier are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold, spices in great quantity and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almond wood and precious stones from Ophir. The king made steps of almond wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never came again such almond wood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you will illumine this passage of Scripture and give us wisdom to see how this passage rightly even applies to us now. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are in the city of Jerusalem during the time that Jesus Christ is born and all that's going on there in that land of Israel. And you come up to a local rabbi and you ask him a question. And you say, Mr. Rabbi, what was the greatest time in all of Israel's history? What was the most glorious time of all in the nation of Israel? I'll bet you that the rabbi would respond to you and he, said, he would say this. It's in the first half of 1 Kings chapter 10 when the queen of Sheba came to visit the king of Solomon. That's it. That's the most glorious time. That's what that rabbi would say. That's the passage I just read to you. You can say it this way. From a visible perspective, the passage I just read to you was like the mountaintop of biblical history from a visible perspective. From a visible perspective, everything before the king, kingdom of Solomon looks forward to that moment. And then after the kingdom of Solomon, after 1 Kings chapter 10, right there, everything looks back to that mountaintop experience from a visible perspective. Let me explain to you what I mean. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God promised the patriarch David saying that kings will come from your body. 
So they're looking forward to the day when kings will rule in the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, God told Moses that the nation one day would set up a king and a kingdom in the promised land. In addition to all that, during Moses' time, Moses built that tabernacle. But what was the tabernacle? It was basically like a, a mobile home that God, you know, that they poured it God around in. It wasn't a stable, permanent, glorious temple. They were looking forward to something better. After Moses, Joshua conquers the promised land, removes all, not all, but conquers the, the promised land and deals with a lot of the evil that's there. Then the nation goes through this horrible time in the book of Judges. One horrible thing after another happens in the book of Judges. And finally, God brings in the time of kings with the birth of Samuel. And when Samuel is born, then he starts shaking things up to put Saul and David in place. And then the glory of Solomon. And the queen of Sheba is like the icing on the cake. Meaning this... Solomon has peace with all of his neighbors. He builds this temple that Israel's always been looking, looking forward to. And now the queen of Sheba, Sheba, which is probably far, far to the east and to the south, maybe people, some people say in the very far tip of the Arabian Peninsula, could have been maybe down in Africa. I think it's toward the east because she brings so much spices. But she comes from such a long way and gives even more glory to the temple into Solomon's kingdom. Just like the woman was made or built, was built in Genesis chapter 2, she brings her glory to the man. Here the woman, the queen of Sheba, is bringing all of her glory to the temple there into Solomon's kingdom. So you have that escalation all the way up. And now we're at the mountaintop. And on this mountaintop, listen to her faith. She says she in this passage of Scripture, uh, things move from hearing to seeing. You'll notice this in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 1. She heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, the Lord. So this is showing that she has faith even in Israel's God, even so, from so far away. And then look in verse 4. When the queen of Sheba had seen, and there's a list of seven things. She saw the wisdom of Solomon, number one, the house he built, the food on the table, seating the servants, the service of the waiters, the cupbearers, and the entryway. She is observing, the reason why there's seven here is because this is Solomon's micro-creation. Just as God created everything in seven days, here you have Solomon creating a kingdom here, and she, she observes everything. And then in her speech, she moves from hearing to seeing. She says, I heard about this. Now I see it with my own eyes. She is on the mountaintop of this historical moment, and she brings all of her glory to it. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, she, she gives the king 120 talents of gold. Spices and great quantities, precious stones. And even the, the narrator here says this. It's like he's looking back at the mountaintop as well. Later in history, he says, Never again came such an abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So think of this. In 1 Kings chapter 10, you're on the mountaintop of glory. Visible perspective, glory. What happens later? Everything else after this point starts going downhill. In the last half of this chapter, 
Solomon falls into sin, or he gives reason to why he falls into sin. And then after Solomon, the kingdom is split between the north and the south. The Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. The Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. They go into 70 years of Babylonian exile. They come back to rebuild Solomon's temple, and it's not near as glorious as it once was. And the Jews, they never again, they never again regain their political power over the promised land like Solomon did. The Jews are under the Persians when they go back to build the temple. And then they're under the Greeks. And then they're under the Romans. And then the Romans destroy them totally in 70 A.D. And then whatever remains of the Jewish religion after 70 A.D. is no longer anything like it is in the Bible. All modern Judaism right now really is a, a foreign religion to the Bible. The Judaism today is really not Judaism at all. It's just a made-up superstition. It has nothing to do with a tabernacle or a temple or animal sacrifices or Levitical priesthood or the, someone going to the Holy of Holies wearing an ephod representing God's people. That's biblical Judaism that anticipated Christ. So by definition... By definition of the biblical definition of Judaism, Judaism does not exist anymore today. So when you look at, think about it, even those who claim to be Jewish, they also would look back at this chapter right here and say, yep, that was the mountaintop of old Israel's glory here when the Queen of Sheba came to see it. Now, what's going on here? Why? Why does the Bible have this glorious mountaintop here in, its, in this chapter? Why does everything seem to go downhill in the Bible after this chapter, after the visit with the Queen of Sheba? Well, here's your answer, the true answer. The Bible actually does not go downhill after this moment. The Bible does not go downhill after the error or era of the kings and the time period of the kings, what God does is He does new and greater and better things. God takes the nation of Israel through different deaths and resurrections throughout history. And this is exactly what Jesus taught, especially when He showed up on the scene. When Jesus came in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said that there was someone greater than the temple, and that was Him. That was there. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus said that he was greater than Jonah. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus said this, The queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment and, and will condemn this generation, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the words of Solomon and, the, and to see the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, Jesus says, A greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus looks back at history, he doesn't see King Solomon as the high point. He doesn't see King Solomon as this great time. He just sees it as a platform and his time is actually greater because he has shown up. He is greater than Solomon. He has more glory than Solomon. And he says the Queen of Sheba would even agree with him. Because the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up in the judgment and condemn the generation that rejected Jesus Christ. Now you well know that Jesus spoke in hyperbole at times 
Hyperbole means an exaggerated form of speech, like don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give an offering. Or pluck out your right eye or cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin, Jesus says. Those are hyperboles or exaggerations to make a point. I would suggest to you, though, that when Jesus says this about the Queen of Sheba, he is not exaggerating. He is being dead serious and very literal. Because there will be a literal resurrection from the dead. The Queen of Sheba, her body that is now dust, will have a brand new body in the resurrection. And she will appear before the throne of God and condemn all the unbelievers on the day of judgment who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. She will say, I saw the wisdom of Solomon and it was great. Those people in the Lord Jesus' day had something better than I had and they rejected him. They were even there in his face right there and saw him and rejected him. Saw his miracles. I came from the ends of the earth to go and see Solomon. But they were there in the presence of God who was man. Lord, condemn them. I didn't have that opportunity. But condemn them, Lord. That's what she's going to say on the day of judgment against the people who rejected Jesus Christ and didn't come to faith in him. Those people in his generation. So it leads to the question, what was that, that high point, really, in the Old Testament with the Queen of Sheba when she visited Solomon? Let me give you two, two answers to that question. What was that high point in the Old Testament? Well, actually the truth is, the Queen of Sheba was simply a prototype of greater high points to come. Greater high points to come after her. This is what's alluded to later in the Bible. In Psalm 72, which we sang a part of this morning in our worship service, when it looks forward to the Messiah, it alludes back to the Queen of Sheba as a prototype. Listen to this. The Messiah, it says in verse 8, Psalm 72, He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, and those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before Him, and His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will bring gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. The psalmist here, here is, is looking at the queen of Sheba literally as a type of prototype writing about what the Messiah is going to experience. Very much similar to what Solomon experienced. But it's going to be better and greater with the Messiah. Listen to one other passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 60. This concerns the future of the church. The future New Jerusalem. Chapter 60 verses 5 and 6. It says, The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you, city of Jerusalem, church, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's referring to ultimately. Verse 6. The multitude of camels shall come into your land. The camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. What the Bible does, prophetically and spiritually speaking, it has the Queen of Sheba in the back, and it says, that's what it's like in the future. That's what it's going to be like when God rebuilds the true Jerusalem, the true people of God. It's going to, all the earth is going to come into the kingdom in that sense and bring in glory and honor and praise to the Lord. In other words, after the Queen of Sheba, the prophets would understand that Israel 
and the truth of the Bible. It's going to bring God's people through deaths and resurrections. This is why whenever they go into Babylonian exile, Ezekiel will see a valley of dry bones. And it's all dead people, dead Israel. But God says, I'm going to give life to them and bring them back. And when they come back into the promised land, they don't, they're not localized to the promised land like they were in the days of Solomon. They spread out all over the Persian Empire. So though they're not kings, though they're not, they're not you know, ruling with Cyrus and Darius and all those, uh, really making governing decisions, they have more influence. They're creating synagogue here, synagogue there, synagogue there. And that prepares the way for the Apostle Paul to go and preach the gospel a couple hundred years later. Here, there, and there, and there. God is ma- slowly maturing his people to have more and more influence. But not as much visible glory. This is why the Jew, when he looks back, he's looking back only at the, the visible aspects of Solomon's kingdom. Doesn't see the impact spiritually that God's doing more and more in history. And that's why the Queen of Sheba is a prototype of greater glories to come. And of course, you can't stop there. Uh, at the end of the Old Testament, you've got to keep going to the New Testament. Jesus goes through a, through a literal, physical death and bodily resurrection, brings immortality to light. The apostles see it and they realize that The new world has come. The new creation is here. A new humanity is here. And we're in union with Him. And we have to spread this news, this gospel, this good news to all the world. And death is dead. It's killed. He's taken the sting out of death. And let's go to the Greeks. Let's go to the Romans. Let's go to the English. Let's go to the Africans. Let's go to the British, the Indians. Everywhere. And bring in the Gentiles into this new Israel, this new church. This new covenant people of God. That's the reality of the greater glory that that the Queen of Sheba was looking forward to. So she's a prototype of greater glories. Also, following the logic of Jesus Christ and His words, the Queen of Sheba, lastly and secondly, she is a prototype of greater condemnations to come. Remember, what is she going to do literally on the day of judgment in the resurrection? She is going to condemn That generation that rejected Jesus and did not repent and follow Him. Well, you can say the same principle applies to our generation. There's multitudes that will stand up on the day of judgment and condemn American after American after American after American, especially in this generation. There's multitudes who went through oppression. There's multitudes that went through life without having a Bible, who didn't know the true and living God, who actually... We're finding, trying to find meaning in life, but didn't have the light of Scripture, didn't have a, a pulpit to go to in, hundreds of miles away. And they're going to hear about there were Americans that had the Bible being preached to them right in their hometown, and these people were just too lazy to come to church and go to hear it. There were Americans that had liberty and freedom, and they had good, good rulers over them. And they, didn't, they weren't persecuted, they weren't oppressed, they weren't in poverty, they weren't in misery, and they were full of food and entertainment, and it was all there. But they rejected the Bible. That's exactly the logic that Jesus is using, how types of queen of Sheba's will condemn people in our generation because we had so much light exposed to us, so much truth so much liberty, so much freedom, so much peace, so much prosperity. We're all fat with it. And yet sometimes 
We don't appreciate it like we should. And oftentimes, people just trample it underfoot, take it for granted, and think, oh, whatever. There's only so many types of Queen of Sheba's that point the finger and condemn such people in our generation. Americans can be really filled with so much entitlement and victim mentality. They think they're surrounded by tyranny, but actually they're filled with freedom. They're filled with liberty. If they're a victim of anything, they're a victim of success, a victim of being, of, of being grossly entitled with so many gifts and so much money that they think that they're poor, but they're the richest people in the world. This is how you can apply the Queen of Sheba even to so many different levels. Yes, she's a prototype of greater glories. But as Jesus uses her and how she appreciates going so far away to see the truth and the glory of Solomon, you think about what you have as a Christian. You have the entire Bible. It's written. It's, it's finished. The apostles didn't even have a finished Bible in their hand. The church, the early church didn't have a finished Bible. They were finishing the Bible. And here we have the complete Word of God. We have the authority of Scripture. We can look through all the narratives in the Old Testament and learn from them and apply them with greater wisdom, greater strength, because we have a greater dose of the Holy Spirit even after Pentecost. So therefore, we need to learn to appreciate what we have. Don't take it for granted. Don't trample the Son of God or His church underfoot. Improve upon your baptism with faith, repentance, and perseverance so that nobody on the day of judgment will condemn you like the queen of Sheba. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray, Father, that you will strengthen us, Lord, with the power of your spirit. Because you love us eternally, you also gift us, Lord, with blessings from heaven, the waters from heaven. We pray, Lord, that you give us your spirit to grip the scripture, grip the Bible and the gospel and hold it dear to the bitter end. And Father in heaven, we pray that you will cause such a wave of revival and reformation that even people in America would appreciate the freedoms they have and, and see that it comes from generations and centuries of Christian influence upon culture and even upon politics. And we pray, Father, you will cause a spirit of gratitude to grow in our country. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.